You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I want to just have a little pop quiz right at the beginning here, just to see how you're doing with your Bible knowledge. What do you think is the most frequent command in the Bible? What do you think God commands most frequently in the Bible? Think about it. It's, yeah, somebody knows the answer. Yeah, you know, do not fear. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Again and again. Someone in the last service told me they said it's uh, 365 times, one for every day. I don't know if that's true or not, but, um, you know, it's not be holy as I'm holy. It's not be good. It's not don't sin. It's do not fear. And you begin to wonder, what does this tell you about God? Whose primary concern, whose greatest obsession is that you won't be afraid. What does it tell you about the purpose of your life? That you're being held by a God who gives you the capacity to obey that commandment and engage the challenges of life in front of you. I mean, who are you? That you could live in this world and not be afraid. That's challenging. It's inviting. It's uh, such a simple command, right? Don't be afraid. But it's so hard. For me, it's so hard. Just looking at the headlines, the words tell the story. Ebola, ISIS, Hamas, Crimea, New Russia, Tsarnaev, Ferguson, Napa. Writers are now describing the era in which you live as the age of terror. But it's not just that the fear is out there coming at us. Really, the fear is deep down inside each and every one of us. We're afraid. I'm afraid you won't like me. You know, I don't mind a bomb. My biggest fear is that you won't like me, right? And that's not an insignificant fear. And you and I live with these fears from the moment we're born, that we'll be abandoned, that we won't be loved. I mean, this is back to school. A lot of us, mom and dads, we're afraid what's going to happen to our kids. Some of us are teachers, are afraid that all the kids are going to come back and we'll have to be with them for nine months again, right? <laughs> Some of us are applying for colleges. We're afraid we won't get into the right school or, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have work. We're afraid we're not going to... No one's going to employ us, or if we are employed, we're afraid they're going to discover that we don't really do the job as well as everybody thinks we do the job. And someday we're afraid that our health is going to fail us. We're afraid we're going to lose our hair. We're going to afraid that one day we're going to put on our socks for the last time, and then we're going to die. Right? There's a lot to be afraid of. Let's be honest. And so maybe that's why the command gets reiterated again and again and again. This is so hard to obey. This command that it's almost harder. Uh, than any of these others. I mean, it seems like you could almost say it's as hard or harder than the, the command to chastity or to tithing or, or, or caring for the poor or, you know, for justice, right, to do all those things. But I begin to wonder whether it's possible to do any of those other commands until we do this first one, to not be afraid. I mean, I can be so obsessed with fear that I can't get to any of the other stuff that I know I want my life to be about. This beautiful life that Jesus describes for us becomes inaccessible if we're paralyzed by fears. It's kind of like a fundamental, fundamental command. So I want to I reflect with you on this uh, this morning. And I want you to hear uh, the command in, right from the pages of Scripture. So would you open up a Bible? If you brought one, turn to Mark chapter 16. It's the last chapter of his gospel. If you didn't, uh, open up the Pew Bible and turn to page 830. And th- there you'll find, I just want to read two verses. You know, we already read this before for you, but you need to read this. It's verses 6 and 7, chapter 16. So if you're able, would you stand? And um, when, you, when you turn there, I'll wait a second. 
like for you to read this out loud uh, with me. And when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Now, who's speaking here is, is an angel. It's a young adult, actually. He's described as a young adult angel sitting in the empty tomb on the Easter Sunday. And these women, these followers of Jesus, are coming to the tomb. Here's what the angel uh, says to them as they're sort of um, paralyzed by fear. Here we go. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's been raised. He is not here. Look, there's the place they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Do not be alarmed. Did you catch it? That's just, that's the same. Do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Calm down. Don't be, don't be scared. Now, we don't know exactly what happened on the day of August 9th in Ferguson, Missouri, between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson. Nobody knows. Darren knows, I guess. But what we all know, or should know, is that what happened between those two men happened because of fear. That's why it happened. Fear. A white police officer, a black man in the middle of the street. Fear. And, and it, tragic fear at that. It, you know, it destroyed both of them in some significant ways. And it's tearing at the fabric of that community. In fact, I think it's revealing the tears in, in that community. But it's now a community self-consciously aware of its fear. It's locked down by fear. Fear of racism and excessive force. Fear of violence and anarchy. But there's one guy. Here's what interests me in the story. There's one guy that walks the streets of Ferguson, Missouri right now. And I'm, I'm sure he's afraid. But he is not acting out of fear. Have you seen this in the news? His name is Ron Johnson. This is Captain Ron Johnson. He's a captain in the State Patrol, Missouri. He's been assigned to bring security and peace in Ferguson, and where everybody else is acting out of fear, it's really clear to me that he is not. I mean, when you've got armored vehicles on one hand and Molotov cocktail uh, throwing crowds on the other, at night, Captain Ferguson is stepping right in between, right in the middle of the, uh, the drawn battle lines. And he's doing so very differently. He, on the first night he shows up, he orders everyone to take off the gas mask, take off the body armor, let's get together and talk. He starts gathering people, he marches with protesters, he gets off the dais and into the crowds. And the New York Times reporter notices that when he moves through these crowds, he stops and he listens. And the New York Times reporter noticed that when he turns away from the crowds, he can see tears in his eyes because he's hearing the stories of people that are locked down by fear. He's a remarkable man. I don't know that much about him, but his life has commended him to me. The nation.com raised the question in one of their articles recently, is Ferguson's Ron Johnson the new Captain America? I like that. I think we could do no worse. But the question is, where does that come from? Where does his boldness come from in the face of fear? Well, um, I, I think Mark sets that question before us this morning. When he tells us the story of Joseph of Arimathea. 
Joseph of Arimathea. Now, you may not know that name. He's kind of an obscure Bible character. He only comes up at this moment in the Gospels and nowhere else in the Bible. Joseph. Uh, but we're told here in verse 43 by Mark that Joseph of, Arimathea, of Arimathea went boldly. Do you see that? I mean, you might want to open your Bibles back up if you closed them. Because uh, I'm going to show you some places here in the scripture uh, that will make a difference for you if you believe them. He, Joseph of Arimathea went boldly. This is the disruption. This is the moment that changes the context in which everyone else lives their life. Just like you know, how Ron Ferguson steps into the middle and disrupts the cycles of fear, changes the context of the conversation in Ferguson so that now instead of throwing and shooting uh, stuff at each other, uh, people are talking and there's conversation and there's the opportunity now for reconciliation and for justice and for peace. Joseph of Arimathea has that same kind of impulse. I'm not sure Joseph of Arimathea knows as much as Ron Johnson knows about it, but he steps into the middle of the drama, the dangerous, toxic, violent drama of the cross. He goes boldly. And, and, you know, that's what Mark wants you to see. Now, I, I want you to see that Mark continues this pattern of telling the story of Jesus with the sandwich stories, and this is the last of them. Um, there's story A, which is the first story he starts telling us, a story of some female followers of Jesus. And that story is a story of fear. And that's the way Mark tells us. He says there were these followers of Jesus, and they once followed him closely, but now they're watching from a distance. Why? It's what we call a safe distance. They, have, they, they cannot get close to the one they once followed in Galilee because they're afraid. They're stuck. That's how the first piece of bread on the sandwich of story A. Then, you know, there's the disruption of Joseph of Arimathea. I'll come back to that. But on the other end of the story, we come back to story A uh, in verse 47 of chapter 15, that last verse of the chapter. Now we're back with the women, but we're not at the cross anymore. We're at the tomb. Same group of followers. Uh, this time, they hear something from the angel, the part that you read. But we're told they were alarmed, verse 5. Well, they were alarmed. That's fear. And then verse 8, terror seized them, and, and they flee. And so, you know, these are the responses. You think about how, you, how do you react when you're afraid? And what are you afraid of? Just think for a second. Find a fear. How do you react to that fear? I think, you know, you'll do one of three things. You'll either freeze, like these women freeze. You become immobilized. Or you'll flee like the women later in the second half of the story, they just run away. Or, if you want to add Pilate into the mix, who's crucifying Jesus, you will fight. And I get that. I see these dynamics in my marriage. I see these in the way that I relate to problems in my neighborhood. Freeze, flee, or fight. And those things, are, by the way, aren't always bad things to do, but out of fear, uh, then we're in trouble. And we're, we're not able to act boldly and decisively to bring peace in the way that uh, Ron Johnson does. So, so Joseph of Arimathea disrupts the dynamic here by acting boldly. And what he does is he asks Pontius Pilate for the corpse of Jesus. Just ahead of the Sabbath, uh, he's got a very narrow window of opportunity. It's the end of the day, and he goes and he says, can we bury, bury uh, Jesus? Now, I want, I want you to understand the fear here is real. And it's easy not to, to catch this when you just read the story. It's a real fear. Why do I say that? First of all, crucifixion. Think about it. Crucifixion was practiced by the Romans 
to intimidate. That's why it exists. In AD 70, about 40 years after this incident, Titus will come as a general on behalf of Rome and destroy Jerusalem. And as he does it, he's trying to quell an uprising, a nationalistic revolt that the Jews have launched, Masada. You've heard the stories. Titus will come and he will crucify 500 Jews a day. So many that uh, Josephus will tell us uh, that room was wanting, and I hear I'm quoting, that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses were wanting for the bodies. They don't have enough places to put all the crosses and they don't have enough crosses for all the bodies. They are denuding the forests of Judea in order to crucify 500 Jews a day. Why? Josephus, again, he's the Roman Jewish historian who's writing there at the end of the first century. He says this. Titus does this. Well, he says, first of all, he doesn't want to give up guards to to, uh, imprison them, and he doesn't want to release them back into the neighborhoods of Jerusalem. So uh, he crucifies them. Why? Uh, Secondly, out of fear, lest they might themselves afterwards be liable to the same cruel treatment. He says it was fear. The Romans knew that they could maintain control if they could get you scared. They could keep you right where they wanted you if they could terrify you. And that's what crucifixion was. There were much more efficient ways to kill people, but what it did is it, it made you afraid. And, and, it, and then Joseph of Arimathea screwed up his courage, one translation says. He went boldly. He dared. That word, the Greek word is translated dare most frequently in the New Testament. Joseph dared. Now, he had a lot to risk. He was a council member. If, if, let's flip over here to chapter uh, 15, the first two verses. This will give you a sense of the charges that Jesus was brought up against uh, for under. Uh, it says, as soon as it was morning, this is 15.1, as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with elders and scribes and the whole council. Now, Joseph is a council member, we're told. So he was there. So Joseph was there when they brought charges against Jesus, the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate's the governor there, Judea, on behalf of Rome. And they handed him over to Pilate, and Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus was tried by the Romans for treason. And Joseph of Arimathea was there. Now, usually they would let the bodies die. Just a little historical background. The birds, I mean, just rot. Because that's part of the fear that would sit there and be go, that's gross. I don't want that to happen to me. And the birds would come and they would pick the bodies. And the... That's the way the Romans did it. But Jews believed everybody should be buried, even your enemies. So Joseph goes and he asks Pilate for the body. Now, ordinarily, a family member had the right to ask for the body. If anybody was going to make a petition, historical documents, or family members could do so. Joseph's not related to Jesus. In the case of treason... Only the highest levels of authority could give permission because anybody who would want the body of someone who committed treason was a political risk. So do you see what he has to lose? He has to lose his reputation. I'm a member of the council who's ruling the Jews. And his life. I'm going to stand now before Pontius Pilate, this brutal representative of Roman authority and oppression, and I'm going to stand in that place where a family member to Jesus would stand. I'm going to stand in that place where a co-conspirator with Jesus would stand. So, so you see, that's bold. He walks across Jerusalem. He mounts the steps of the Antonia Fortress, which is a huge castle that the Romans built in the northwest corner of the temple. 
in Jerusalem, like a gargantuan guard tower monitoring what the Jews did in the temple courthouse, looking to make sure they didn't mount uh, a revolt. And into those slick, tile-paved hallways of terror, Joseph of Arimathea marches with this one last request on behalf of Jesus. He dares. He went boldly. Why? That's the question. See, that's the question that Mark is putting before his readers at this point, the climax of his gospel. Why? Where would someone get the kind of boldness that would do that? And the answer is this. Here's my, here's my, my answer. My theme for the morning is boldness comes with good news. Good news. When you get the good news into your life, you will expect to find a boldness you have no idea where it would come from. Boldness comes from good news. It, actually, Mark tells us, he gives us kind of a cryptic statement. Look back at verse 43 of chapter 15. This is the verse where it says he went boldly. Well, he actually tells you there why. He said, Joseph was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. Joseph was waiting expectantly. That is to say, he was on the lookout for the kingdom of God. It could break loose here at any moment. I don't know what that would look like. I can hardly imagine it. This looks like it's so bad. This is like an impossible situation. I, I, I know there's nothing I should be able to do that would make any difference or help anybody. It's futile. It's useless. But I'm looking expectantly for God's kingdom to break out in any place at any moment. And you just never know. Now, when you step back and you think about looking expectantly for the kingdom, and, and you put it in the context of the whole gospel, you realize that what Joseph of Arimathea is looking for is good news. Uh, you don't have to flip there, but let me just remind you where this gospel began. This is what Mark writes. The beginning of the good news. That's, the, that's another translation of the word for gospel. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he quotes Isaiah. Uh, this is, I'm sending a messenger ahead of you. Prepare the way. A voice crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist is doing what? He's looking expectantly. He's waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. That's what the whole gospel is calling us to. Calling us to lean on tiptoes with open ears for good news. Who knows? It might just break out in my life. It might just break out in your life. So here's a confession for you. Uh, oh, before I give you my confession, let me just... Um, let me, so it's like vague and, um, and uh, cryptic in verse 43, but it gets clearer when you go look at the uh, second half of the sandwich in chapter 16, verse uh, 6, the part that you read. There we're told in verse 5 that they are alarmed. And now this angel, young adult angel, says, do not be alarmed. Uh, and why? Why should I not be alarmed exactly? Things look very bad. He says, do not be alarmed because... Uh, you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, bad news, but he's been raised, good news. He's not here. Look, there's the place they laid him, but go tell his disciples Peter, and Peter uh, that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he promised you. See, and that's the good news. This angel proclaims the good news. So I, I suggest to you that boldness comes from good news. Now my confession, I am realizing as I age, but more importantly, as I get to know Jesus Christ better, that I am an optimist. I say that's a confession because I know it's very unsophisticated in today's age to claim that you're an optimist, right? The pessimists are much more sophisticated. They're complicated, you know, and if you're, if you're an artist especially, it's important for you to be a pessimist. Uh, but I'm not. 
In fact, I was riding my bike this week, and I, you know, I had the earphones on. I clicked this. I said, Siri, take a memo. I live with good news. I just wanted to declare that about myself and maybe even to convince myself that it's true that no matter what the news is in the world or the news is in my life, whatever my fears are, I'm a person who's committed to living with good news and you can be too. Because that's where boldness comes from. I don't know if you saw in the newspaper last week, a really interesting story. It was buried deep in the paper, New York Times, Seattle Times. a hundred years ago, last week, there was an unlikely tennis match that got played. It was Newport, Rhode Island, which is where they used to have the national championships. And it was two tennis players. You know, it's unlikely, first of all, that you would ever make it into the finals, the national finals. So these two players, it was unlikely they were there anyways. But those two players had also been on the same cruise ship just two years earlier. They didn't even know each other. That cruise ship happened to be the Titanic. They both survived, worked all their way through this, all the tournaments that you get to, to get to Newport, Rhode Island. They were playing each other just two years later. Never should have happened. They should, be, they should both be dead. Now, I don't know how they survived. I'm not sure they even know how they survived. But I'm guessing if you talk to either one of them, they're saying, yeah, I'm kind of become an optimist. Right? And now, what would you be thinking if you are on the Titanic? Sorry to put you there, but just think about it for a second. Because, you know, some of us are, are, are going to say, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not an optimist, but I'm not a pessimist either. I sort of think of myself as a realist. Let's think about that stuff. You want to be a realist? Okay, so what's a realist? A realist is somebody who, who can see the facts clearly. Would you agree? They see the facts clearly. So the realist on the deck of the Titanic says, the boat has hit an iceberg, and I think it's going under, and this is not a good situation. All true, got the facts right, you're the realist. No problem with that, except the realist doesn't see enough, in my opinion. The realist isn't looking beyond. Now, the pessimist is the one who who sees the facts, but who puts the facts in their most negative light. Think about that next time you hear yourself with pessimism. A pessimist sees the facts, the facts are right, but puts them in the most negative light. Uh, We're all going to die, okay? Or the pessimist will even say, you know, the boat's going down, we're all going to die. I knew it from the very beginning. You know, I never should have bought a ticket on this death trap. I knew it. Boats go down. Icebergs are everywhere. That's the pessimist. Okay, so the optimist is different. The optimist, by the way, isn't in denial. The optimist is not a fool. You know, the fool is running around the ship somewhere looking for Kate Winslet, right? You know, dream on. I mean, that's, that's the wrong story entirely. The, the, the optimist is the one who sees the facts, everything that the realist sees. Yeah, the boat's been hit by an iceberg. Yes, we're going down. Yes, this does not look good. Okay. But I know the story doesn't end badly. You know, the, the big story with capital S. I believe in the presence of good news. And so... I am going to pay attention to, I am going to look with expectation at what's immediately in front of me. What's there? And what can I do? I'm going to take action with boldness. And I guarantee you, if you interviewed both of those tennis players, they will tell you a string of moments as that ship was going down where they just did one small little thing that was courageous, that put them in a place that saved their lives, and I'm guessing many others as well. I'm an optimist. I have made a decision to live with good news. And Mark is inviting you to do the same. Good news will make you bold. 
So, Richard, very quickly, let me reflect a little bit on good news because, you know, some of the optimism is really fluffy and insubstantial. I mean, exactly what is the kind of news that would make a difference in my life or in a place like Ferguson, Missouri? And I want to look at the good news the way Mark does here. If you would just take a moment and follow this, there are two ways to look at the good news here as Jesus is dying. If you look at chapter 15, there are two verses right after Jesus dies that gives us two lenses they give us two different meanings. One is a theological meaning, and the other is a historical meaning. The, the theological meaning and the historical meaning of, of the good news. Okay, Jesus dies in verse 37, and in verse 38, we get the theological meaning of his death. And, and here we're looking through Jewish eyes. In, in verse 38, uh, we read this verse that's for Jews. It says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you're a pagan Roman and you read that, you go, oh, man, it's a really bad day. One guy dies and the furniture's going bad. You know, what else is, you know, that, but if you're a Jew, and remember, Mark, John Mark is writing in a Jewish community uh, in Rome, most likely. And uh, so the Jews immediately go, the temple curtain tore the moment that Jesus died? And they're going, oh, my gosh. What does that mean? Well, if you're not Jewish, you need a little explanation there. The temple had an inner room called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God had said, this is where I will place my name. It's the, it's the presence of God concentrated on earth, the one place on the whole earth. It was given to the Jewish people alone, and it was, it was located either in the tabernacle or in the temple, the Holy of Holies, in that room on the wrong side of a curtain. And, and once a year, through drawing lots, a priest was called to go in there. It was Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement. On behalf of all the people, in fact, all humanity, he would go through, they put bells on his ankles and a rope because um, it's not safe to be in the presence of the holiness of God unless you're perfect. No priest ever was except for Jesus Christ. He goes in, they want to just make sure you're still alive. We hear the bells, everything's okay. If he comes out alive, then he comes out having offered a sacrifice on behalf of the sin of all people and he raises his hands to bless them and they see his face and the crowds who are on their tiptoes go... They cheer. He's alive. And what it means is our sins have been forgiven. We now have a relationship with God. We have peace in heaven because of this offering. Well, so when that, when that curtain tears in half, what Mark is saying is, I get it. Jesus is the final suffering, uh, final sacrifice for all human sin. We now have peace with God because Jesus died for your sin. As Mark put it in chapter 10, he ransomed his life, the one for the many. And at that moment, you have peace in heaven. You have nothing to fear in heaven. You have God's presence has moved out, moved out. It's not so that we could get into the Holy of Holies. He's coming out. He's coming out into your life and into mine, the lives of all people. He wants to forgive you so that you don't have anything to fear for all of eternity. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive that gift because that temple was... That's the theological understanding of Jesus' death. Now, there's another guy who's standing by there who wouldn't have gotten that. He's Roman. Look at the next verse. Uh, verse 39. Now, when the centurion, he's a soldier, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, he took his breath away. He said, truly this man was God's son, son of God. Now, what is he thinking there? It's probably not that he's confessing uh, Nicene orthodoxy at this moment, that he's, he's saying, I believe in the full divinity of Jesus Christ. I don't think so. He's just a Roman centurion. He's not a theologian. 
When he says this guy died like he was truly the son of God, he's making a comparison to Roman culture. The only other person to be referred to as the son of God in, in, when you look at the full sweep of Roman history and, and, and its uh, intellectual history would be Augustus Caesar, the first Caesar of Rome. 20 years of civil war and strife and uh, injustice followed Julius Caesar. And it was only Julius Caesar's nephew, Augustus, when he became emperor, uh, he's the emperor when Jesus is born, by the way, that all the poets and all the historians said, this is good news. The Son of God has come to bring peace for all people. And they use the same language. The, the Christians are just ripping off the language that was used by Romans to celebrate the birth and life and rule of Augustus. I mean, if I had more time, I, I, would, I would read this. The if you want to Google this, Prian calendar inscription, 9 BC, calls Augustine a savior. Uh, they say that he came that, uh, that he might end war and arrange all things. He's the birthday of a God. It's, it's the beginning of the good news for the world. So good news through the eyes of the Romans is that, that a king has come to bring peace on earth. So there's peace in heaven, but now there's peace on earth. There's a king who's greater than Augustus, who's come to superintend human history, to overcome our violence, our divisions, and to bring peace. The centurion gets it. That's the good news you and I have been called to hold on to, and it's the good news that ought to give you great boldness, those two things. You've nothing to fear in heaven. You've nothing to fear on earth. You have peace with God, and God is bringing peace through you. The good news will make you bold. I don't think Joseph of Arimathea got all that. Mark expects you, the reader, to get all that. But I don't think he got that. And what did he get? I just, I've thought about this this week. What would it be like to have Jesus buried in your grave? Think about that for a second. I know some of us don't expect to die for a long, long time. But just if you would, fast forward your life to what you think might be the moment of your death. Do you know where you're going to be buried? If you do, go there in your mind right now. Go to the cemetery or a place where your ashes will be scattered or whatever. Go to that place. Maybe you read the headstone and, and you know, there's your name, George L. Hinman. Sounded like a smart guy. We don't know that much about him, but he had a middle, middle initial. And, and, and so you might ask yourself, first of all, well, how did I die? Kind of curious. What happened there at the end? You know, well, what's your worst fear? You might have a theological worst fear that, you know, God hates me. He, he loves everybody else except for me, and I've done some stuff that's so bad then I just deserve everything I got coming. You know, and that's the way you think about it. So let's just imagine that that's what ended your life. Or maybe you have a kind of a historical thing. If I get in, I get in binds, I get in situations, I'm, you know, I'm not very careful about germs. I'm sure that I, I died because I, you know, I used the sponge too many times without, I got disease or I got hit by a bus. I don't know what it is, but whatever killed you, whether you think it's in heaven or on earth, has killed Jesus. And you're looking at your grave and you're going, Jesus died for me. That tomb is occupied. I mean, that's kind of what Joseph of Arimathea felt, right? That tomb is now occupied. And I'm still alive. This, friends, is the meaning of your baptism. When Christ died, you died. When Christ rose, you rose. You are now alive in Christ. You're living on the other side of your own death. What can they do to you now? You're dead already. You've got an extra time. To do whatever Jesus would call you to do. You can live bold. You can dare now. 
That's the kind of boldness a follower of Jesus Christ is called to. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And I think if we can't obey this one command, we'll never be able to authentically follow Jesus. If you, if you can't get past your fear, you'll never be able to obey any of the other commands. You'll never be able to give generously or to tithe if you fear your bills. You will never be able to be honest if you fear that you can't afford to live with the truth. You'll never be able to be chaste or move towards chastity if you fear that God won't provide for your needs for intimacy any other way uh, than sex outside of marriage. You, you uh, would never be able to stop gossiping or backbiting if, if you can't get over the fear of approval for the in-crowd that you have. You'll never be able to escape an abusive relationship if you can't get over the fear that what would happen if I have to be alone? I can't live without this person. You'd never be able to change your career or give up a job that's really, frankly, if you're honest, really, really boring. It doesn't seem to make a difference in the world. If you fear that maybe God doesn't have a calling for me or maybe I can't find any other work that's meaningful or the funding for a ministry that I want to do. You'll never be able to live a life committed to justice if you're fearing that you might lose your life or your way of life. But with good news, you don't have any of those fears. You don't have to. People who live with good news will change the world. An illustration of that, and here's a movie recommendation. If you haven't seen this movie, go watch Sophie Scholl, S-C-H-O-L-L. In the 1930s in Germany, as the Nazi regime rose to power, there was a spreading of a campaign of intimidation and fear. In the midst of that, a lockdown of fear, there were a group of students, actually, university students at the University of Munich. One of them was a woman named Sophie Scholl. And they began to write little leaflets and surreptitiously distribute them around campus so that other students could know the truth, know what real justice was like, real peace was like. And they were trying to out Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Well, it was a very daring thing to do. It was a very dangerous thing to do. And the movie tells the story. But one moment... They stand before a tribunal. It's a kangaroo court. A bunch of military officers are there. And uh, it's the, they say to the judge, someday soon, it's 1943, you will stand where we are standing. Very bold. Because they knew there was a greater king and a greater kingdom. Sophie uh, was a Lutheran believer, follower of Jesus Christ. And uh, towards the end of 1943, the Allies would drop these leaflets over Munich. Here's what Sophie Scholl says about living. This is in one of her letters. Listen to this. The real damage today is done by those millions who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace. Those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves. Those with no sides and no causes. Those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness. Those who don't like to make waves or enemies. Those for whom freedom, honor, and truth and principles are only literature. Those who live small, mate small, die small. It's the reductionist approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the bogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion. Because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe... Safe, she asks. From what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues, and a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. She believed in good news, and she determined to go and be a flaming torch. 
Can you imagine how much hope we can share if we go back this fall to school or to our marriages, holding on to good news? We go back to our neighborhoods and our small groups and move to the center of places of racial tension or injustice or poverty or broken families or neglect. How would our city begin to change if we had just half a dozen Ron Fergusons in our midst? And, and we do. We have so many. See, Ron Ferguson, just uh, as I close here, he, he, uh, one night he was under the, the lamps of a press corps. He was pressed on all sides by members of the community. and He was listening to them. And at one point he said, I want to tell you what my daughter and I were talking about. And he spoke of Jesus. She reminded me that Jesus had walked on the water. He had done the impossible. He had done what nobody else could do because he was expectant that Jesus would keep him safe. And when he was afraid and he took his eyes off of Jesus, he started to go down. But Jesus helped him even then. What are your fears? How do you find them making you freeze or flee or fight? The Gospel of Mark ends at verse 8. You can read the footnotes in your Bible if you want to understand that. It ends at verse 8, which is highly surprising. That's why the scribes added extra stuff, because they couldn't believe the Gospel would end without a picture of Jesus risen from the dead. And we don't have one at the end of the Gospel of Mark. We just are told that he is risen, and we're given a promise that he's going before us. And I like that. I think Mark does that very intentionally, because Mark wants to end his Gospel right where you and I are. We've never seen Jesus risen from the dead. We don't get to see him with our eyes, but we do get the promise that he is risen and that he is going ahead of you. No matter what you're going through, he's going ahead into all of eternity, and he's with you all the while. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you call us not to be afraid. We couldn't do that if it weren't for you. We cry out to you, help us in our unbelief. We thank you for the good news and only ask that you'll open our ears and eyes, that you'll create in us a fresh expectation that there is a yes everywhere we can only see no, and that you will make us agents of change, that you, the Prince of Peace, might deputize us and empower us by your Holy Spirit to step into places of division and animosity and deprivation, and give witness to peace. Help us to dream again, we pray in your name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301 extension 117.